All right, let's talk about the second half of Dr. Faustus. In the second chorus, uh, we get the, the information that Mephistopheles and Faustus have come to Rome to see the Pope uh, and take some part of Holy Peter's Feast that to this day is highly solemnized. So they're, they're coming in the, the Feast of St. Peter and uh, Mephistopheles says that he is, uh, uh, line 24, I have taken up his, holy, his holiness privy chamber for our use. So they've gone into the private rooms of the Pope. Now, you have to remember that this was written in uh, a, a very Protestant England. So the the Catholic Church of Rome was anathema. They were uh, they were the they were the bad guys. There were you know religious wars that were being fought between Protestants and Catholics throughout the Renaissance, and so having the the, the Pope be a, a figure of ridicule was something that was entirely acceptable. You were supposed to ridicule the Pope. He was the bad guy. On the other hand, ridiculing religion in general was frowned upon. So Marlowe has found a a clever way to have uh, Faustus and Mephistopheles a kind of poke fun at religion in a culturally acceptable way by directing it towards the, towards the Pope and towards Catholicism. And they, around uh, line 50, uh, Mephistopheles says that, uh, I know you fain, you'd fain see the Pope and take some part of Holy Peter's feast where thou shalt see a troop of bald pate fi- friars whose summum bonum is in belly cheer. So their their highest aspiration is to have a full belly. He says, well, I am content to compass then some sport, and by their folly make us merriment. Then charm me that I may be invisible, to do what I please, unseen of any, whilst I stay in Rome. So, uh, though, of course, we as the audience can see Faustus, nobody else can. He's, he's invisible and thus able to play these practical jokes. So the Pope and the, the Cardinals come, and the Cardinal comes in, and they're having a banquet with the friars. And, um, you know, the Pope says, my uh, Lord, here, he's giving it to the, the, the Cardinal, my Lord, here is a dainty dish, was sent to me from the Bishop of Milan. Faustus says, thank you, sir, and snatches it out of his hand. Uh, He says, my lord, this dish was sent me from the Cardinal of Florence. You say true? I'll have it. Faustus grabs that one, too. He says, my lord, I'll drink to your grace. I'll pledge your grace. So he grabs the cup, and uh, the the Cardinal of Lorraine, Lorraine says, my lord... It may be some ghost, newly crept out of purgatory, come to beg a pardon of your holiness. Uh, this is, um, uh, again, kind of poking fun at Catholic doctrine. Uh, one of the distinctions between Catholic and Protestant theology is the Catholic belief in purgatory. That is a place that the good people go before they get to heaven to purge their sins. It's purgatory. That's what it is. Uh, in fact, one of the kind of outrages of the uh, of the Catholic Church, according to the Protestants, was the selling of indulgences that you would pay the the church money to help get your dead relatives out of purgatory faster. 
Um, so Faustus comes in and uh, he says, well, uh, he, he gives hits him a box on the ear. So he, he hits the, the Pope on the ear. And this is really almost like slapstick stuff, right? They're kind of making uh, making fun and uh, it says, "Well, they're going. They're going to come in and try to exercise us." Uh, so they come in with, as they say, bell, book, and candle, and have these, uh, uh, you know, very serious. Cursed be he that stole away his holiness meat from the table. Maledicit Dominus. Cursed be he that struck his holiness a blow on the face. Maledicit Dominus. Um, and at, at the end, you know, as the stage direction shows you, the uh, they, they beat the fly, the friars, and fling fireworks among them. Um, now, now think about this: is the first uh, after we've had the, the the bargain between Faustus and Mephistopheles. This is the first thing that we see Faustus doing with his new power, and. It's, I mean, it's entertaining, it's funny, but it's kind of an anticlimax. This is not the kind of grand, uh, you know, vast imagination spanning ambition that we heard from Faustus in the first part of the play. Uh, this is, uh, you know, practical jokes. And the tone of this is much more like the, the, the low comic scenes that we've had with, uh, with Robin and Rafe and uh, with Wagner. Uh, in fact, we get Robin and Rafe come back in in scene eight, and uh, again the 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 kind of boundaries between those two, which were very strong in the uh, you know the first part of the play, uh, get more porous here. Mephistopheles comes into this scene, so the 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 tone of the the plot and the subplots is getting closer together at this point. Now the next chorus, the third chorus for the next section of the play announces that uh, Faustus is going to the, the court of uh, uh, Charles V, the, uh, the, the, the emperor, uh, at whose palace now Faustus is feasted amongst his noblemen. Again, think how often food and feasting occur in this play. The kind of the idea of gluttony is always kind of subliminally there in the background. And we get this scene, uh, scene nine, uh, with uh, the emperor, with Faustus. And the emperor says, I have heard strange report of thy knowledge in the black art, uh, how that none in my empire nor in the whole world can compare with thee for rare effects of magic. They say thou hast a familiar spirit by whom thou canst accomplish what thou list. This, therefore, is my request that thou let me see some proof of thy skill, that mine eyes may be witness to confirm what mine ears have heard reported. Um, so he wants to, you know, the uh, emperor wants Faustus to perform for him. Um, and, and notice that uh, Faustus is really almost taking on the role of a servant here. He seems to be working at the court of the king. Um this is, again, very different from the ambition that he would be the ruler of the universe and all of this. And here he is kind of performing magic tricks for the emperor. Note, too, that the, the knight says in uh, line 10, in an aside, now an aside was a convention where the actor talks not to the people on stage, but directly to the audience. Uh, he says it aside to the audience. He says, in faith, he looks much like a conjurer. He, he, just like, he doesn't look like anything special. He's just a, a trickster. 
Um, and what the, 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 they ignore him, and what the emperor wants Faustus to do is to see, let him see Alexander the Great. Uh, and it says line, around line 30, um, If therefore thou, by cunning of thine art, canst raise this man from hollow vaults below, where lies entombed this famous conqueror, and bring him with his beauteous paramour, both in their right shapes, gesture, and attire they used to wear during their time of life, thou shalt both satisfy my just desire and give me cause to praise thee while I, whilst I live. So this is what he wants. He wants to see Alexander the Great and Alexander's paramour, uh, Roxanne. Um, and Faustus uh, tells them that, uh, line 45, such spirits as I can lively, as, as such Spirits as can lively resemble Alexander and his paramour shall appear before your grace in the manner that they best lived in, in their most flourishing estate, which I doubt not shall sufficiently content your imperial majesty. Um, so he's saying that these are just um, uh, these are just spirits; they're not the real thing. But I can give you a, a, a uh, an illusion that looks just like the real thing. And notice that the knight has gone from giving aside; he's actually uh, uh, publicly uh, confronting Faustus. Uh, Do you hear, Master Doctor? You bring Alexander and his paramour before the emperor. Faustus says, "How then, sir?" In faith, that's as true as Diana turned me to a stag. No, sir, but when Actaeon died, he left the horns for you. Um, now, what the knight says, that this, he's saying this is just a, this is like a fairy tale, a myth. Yeah, I'll believe that when the goddess Diana turns me into a stag. Well, there was a myth of a guy named Actaeon who saw the, the goddess Diana naked uh, bathing and in uh, uh, revenge, she turned him into a stag, and Actaeon's own uh, uh, hunting dogs hunted him down and killed him. Um, and he's making a little joke on horns here. Horns, uh, to wear horns, uh, meant to be a cuckold, to be a man whose wife was cheating on him, uh, like in the Miller's Tale. Um and we still have this idea. If you see, you know, in, in pictures sometimes, somebody makes little rabbit ears behind somebody's head. It looks like they've got, you know, uh, uh, horns. Uh, that's that's the horns. That's the sign for it. Some, something's happening behind their back that's making them look foolish. Uh, th- so that's the, the double meaning of horns here. Um, so the knight leaves the stage for a moment, and uh, Mephistopheles is left, and he uh, sends in... Uh, comes back in with Alexander and his paramour. Now, notice they don't say anything. Again, they're just visions, um, but they're very detailed. Even the, the mole on her neck is there. Uh, uh, everything is exactly as it should be. And then when the knight comes in, he's got a pair of horns on his head. Again, that joke has been made literal, um, and he wants this, you know, you, you should, uh, uh, how darest thou abuse a gentleman? Um now again, this is this is kind of entertaining stuff, uh, and uh, but it's not the kind of grandiose stuff we imagined maybe from the beginning of the play. Um, 
even Alexander and his paramour, which is a kind of a, a wondrous thing, it, it, it underscores the fact that, well, this isn't real. This is just spirits made to look like those two. It's not the real thing. And the whole thing with putting the stag horns on the, the knight and then taking them off, uh, again, it's, it's, it's very close to kind of slapstick comedy here. Uh, as is the next scene in scene 10, Faustus sells his horse to the, the, the horse courser, and but he warns him, whatever you do, don't ride him into the water. Um, and of course, the horse courser does exactly that. Um, he is, uh, uh, he's, you know, he paid $40 for this horse. And what happened when he rode it into the water, this is around line uh, 38, I was no sooner in the in the middle of the pond, but my horse vanished away, and I sat upon a bottle of hay, never so near drowning in my life. So he just turns into a bundle of hay when he hits the when the horse hits the water, and naturally he wants his money back. Uh, but Mephistopheles says, "Oh, don't disturb him; he's asleep." Uh, so he's asleep in the chair on stage, and. The, the horse courser goes up to him and yells in his ear, he won't wake up, he grabs his leg, and his leg comes off. And Faustus says, oh, my leg, my leg, help Mephistopheles, call the officers, my leg, my leg. Um, and the horse courser, oh, Lord, let me go, and I'll give you $40 more. Um, so they're kind of conning this guy out of money. Um, again, and especially if this is well staged, it can be very entertaining. Um, you know, he gets his, his leg, Faustus gets his leg again. Uh, there's another, there are two main versions of, of the text of Dr. Faustus. Uh, the one we're reading is the earlier, uh, earlier printed version. Uh, but in the later one, it, it adds in several scenes. And in one of them, uh, another scene like this, uh, these people, you know, uh, Faustus has tricked these people, and in revenge, they go and attack him and knock his head off. Uh, but because he's a magician, it doesn't kill him. He just keeps coming towards them, and um, it has a, a great line in there. One of the men says, for God's sake, give him his head back. Um so this is the kind of, of, of wacky adventures that uh, Faustus is getting into. Uh, but in the middle of this, like look back uh, right before Faustus goes to sleep, he has a little soliloquy around line 25 in scene 10. What art thou, Faustus, but a man condemned to die? The fatal time doth draw to final end. Despair doth drive distrust into my thoughts. Confound these passions with a quiet sleep. Tush, Christ did call the thief upon the cross. Then rest thee, Faustus, quiet in conceit. So here we've got, as we, we saw uh, much more in the first part of the play, this vacillation, his kind of awareness of his uh, the, the his time is drawing into an end. He's condemned to die, but he's kind of comforting himself. Oh, it doesn't really matter, you know. Uh, Christ forgave a, a thief, you know, next to him on the cross. Uh, so I can wait until the last minute; it'll still be okay. Um, there's a lot of self justification going on with uh, uh, with Faustus. Uh, 
So that comes in occasionally, but mostly the tone of the middle part of the play is uh, much more comical. Uh, it's just these kind of bizarre things and, and, and funny things that Faustus does. Now, look in scene 11. Uh, this is where he goes to the the Duke of Van Holt, the Duke and Duchess of Van Holt. Um, and the Duchess is pregnant. And he, asks, he says to her, line five, I have heard that great-bellied women do long for some dainties or other. What is it, madam? Tell me, and you shall have it. And the Duchess says, Thanks, good master doctor, and for I see your courteous intent to pleasure me, I will not hide from you the thing my heart desires. And were it now summer, as it is January and the dead of winter, I would desire no better meat than a dish of ripe grapes. So here it's, you know, it's, it's January, it's in the, it's, it's winter time, but she's pregnant and she has this craving for Grapes. Uh, now, remember, this is a time where uh, they don't have supermarkets, they don't have refrigeration. Uh, you could only eat fruit that was in season and could be gotten to you in a timely manner. Uh, so she can't have grapes in the middle of, of uh, winter. Um, and Faustus sends off Mephistopheles, and he comes back, and indeed, he has the grapes. Um, and Faustus explains it. You know, if you like your grace, the year is divided into two circles over the whole world, that when it is here, winter, with us, in the contrary circle, it is summer, with them, as in India, Saba, and farther countries in the east. And by means of a swift spirit that I have, I had them brought hither, as ye see. How do you like them, madam? Be they good? Because believe me, Master Doctor, they be the best grapes that e'er I tasted in my life. I am glad they content you so, madam. Uh, now, this is an interesting little incident here. Um, in all of the other uh, display, most of the other displays of Faustus' power are connected with these practical jokes, with him getting revenge on people, making a fool of someone. This is something that is not that. This is a, a kind of a simple uh, request that he fulfills with his magic, which is in some ways the most um, uh, fulfilling moment in the play. It is, again, like so much in the play, linked to the idea of eating. Um, and th this kind of simple physical pleasure and satisfaction um, is, you know, right here, just, just a moment in the play, but something that Faustus kind of dismisses. He's, oh, is, is that all you want? Just this, you know, is that what's going to content you? Um, and it's very, it, it's a nice contrast between the the vast ambitions that Faustus has and the very simple request that the, the Duchess has, the very simple human request. And it's, I think it sets up thematically a, a very interesting contrast uh, between those and suggests uh, how Faustus got off track. He was not content with the, the simple things. Uh, he, he, wanted, he wanted the world. Now, Chorus 4, uh, uh, Wagner uh, 
announces, I think my master means to die shortly, for he has given to me all his goods. And yet methinks, if that death were near, he would not banquet and carouse and swill amongst the students, or e- as even now he doth, who are at supper with such belly cheer as Wagner never beheld in all his life. See where, where they come, belike the feast is ended. So uh, Faustus is back in in Wittenberg, and he, his servant can't understand. Well, he, he's given me all of his worldly goods, and yet he's out banqueting and having a jolly old time. I, you know, I'm getting getting very mixed signals here. So we have these scholars uh, from talking with uh, with Faustus. Notice the stage directions as um, enter Faustus and Mephistopheles with two or three scholars. Uh, again, that suggests that the you know they however many actors were available. If you look at the the, the cast list, you'll see there are a whole lot of roles. There are over thirty uh, speaking roles in the play. And Renaissance acting companies had maybe a dozen people in them. Uh, so there had to have been a lot of doubling of roles. People would play multiple roles. And that, w- that was very common in uh, uh, Elizabethan theater. Uh, so we get the, you know, the two or three scholars who come here. And they're talking about Helen of Greece. Uh, let us see that peerless da- dame of Greece. Uh, now, Helen of Troy was the uh, the start of the Trojan War as the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, Paris, uh, she ran away with Paris to Troy and started the Trojan War. Um, and you see her, and and they're you know awestruck by her. Uh, they say, "Too simple is my wit to tell her praise." whom all the world admires for majesty. No marvel, though the angry Greek pursued with ten years' war the rape of such a queen, whose heavenly beauty passeth all compare. Um, so the, the scholars leave, they've seen this, and this obviously is parallel to the display of Alexander the Great. Here we get the display of Helen of Troy, another one of these spirits that he can conjure. And now in comes this the old man, which is an interesting figure. He, he says, in some ways, I think he's kind of taking the place of the, the good and evil angels. Uh, they, they don't show up anymore, but the old man does. He's in some ways the voice of conscience here. He says, Ah, Dr. Faustus, that I might prevail to guide thy steps into the way of life by which sweet path thou mayest attain the goal that shall conduct thee to celestial rest. Break heart, drop blood, and mingle it with tears, tears falling from repentant heaviness of thy most vile and loathsome filthiness. So he's calling on him to repent. He he wants to save his soul. And Faustus says, Damned art thou, Faustus, damned, despair, and die. Um... And the old man says, line 44, I see an angel hovers o'er thy head, and with a vial full of precious grace offers to pour the same into thy soul. Then call for mercy and avoid despair. Ah, my sweet friend, says Faustus, I feel thy words to comfort my distressed soul. Leave me a while to ponder on my sins. 
So here we're getting, again, this, the, the vacillation back and forth that we get with Faustus. Now he's, he's going to try to repent. He says, I do repent, and yet I do despair. And remember, despair is a, a theological uh, state. It's not just I feel bad, it's I feel, I believe that I am unforgivable. I repent, but I don't think that my repentance will do any good. I'm too, I'm too sinful to be forgiven. Hell strives with grace for conquering in my breast. What shall I do to shun the snares of death? And Mephistopheles wants to put a stop to this right away. He says, I arrest thy soul for disobedience to my sovereign Lord. Revolt, or I'll in piecemeal tear thy flesh. Uh, and this is another image that comes up throughout the play, being torn to pieces. Uh, even in the, the comic scene, uh, remember he said he would turn his fleas to familiars and tear thee to pieces. And here's uh, here's that image again. Um, and Mephistopheles is worried. He says, line 70, his faith is great. I cannot touch his soul, but what I may afflict his body with, I will attempt, which is but little worth. I, I can't directly interfere with his soul, but I can appeal to his his body. And, and Faustus says, One thing, good servant, let me crave of thee, to glut the longing of my heart's desire. There's that language of, of eating again, glut. Um, that I might have unto my paramour that heavenly Helen, which I saw of late whose sweet embracings may extinguish clean these thoughts that do dissuade me from my vow, and keep mine oath I made to Lucifer. So what he wants, he knows that he's seen these, these spirits before. We've seen the ones of Alexander, and we've just seen the one of Helen. But he says, I don't want just a spirit that I can look at. I want a physical paramour. He, he wants to sleep with Helen of Troy. He wants to be, make love to her. Uh, and then Helen comes back in, and we get uh, one of the most famous lines and one of the most famous speeches in the play. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Her lips sucks forth my soul. See where it flies. Come, Helen, come. Give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven be in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena. So, again, that famous line, was this the face that launched a thousand ships? And the, the focus on the, her, the beauty of her face here. And notice also that he's thinking still about uh, eternity, about salvation and damnation here, but in a different way. Make me immortal with a kiss. So this is a kind of immortality not of, you know, living in the afterlife, but of uh, being immortal because legendary. You know, he's he's the one who kissed Helen of Troy. And the way he puts it, my, her lips sucks forth my soul. See where it flies? So her, her kiss kind of pulls the soul out of him. Give me, Helen, give me my soul again. Um, it says, for heaven be in these lips. And it says, I will be Paris, 
uh, Paris is the, the the Trojan who who abducted Helen, and for love of thee, instead of Troy, shall Wittenberg be sacked, and I will combat with weak Menelaus and wear thy colors on my plumed crest. Yea, I will wound Achilles in the heel, and then return to Helen for a kiss. So he's imagining himself as a modern-day uh, Paris who will take uh, uh, Helen and defend Wittenberg and uh, kill Achilles by shooting him in the heel uh, and then go back to Helen for a kiss. Oh, thou art fairer than the evening air clad in the beauty of a thousand stars. Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter when he appeared to hapless Semele, more lovely than the monarch of the sky in wanton Arethusa's azured arms, and none but thou shalt be my paramour. Uh, now this is, if you remember, the first thing that uh, Faustus asked of Mephistopheles is, let me have a wife. Well, here is not a wife, but a paramour. And what a paramour. This is Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world. Notice that uh, that image he gives. He says, Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter when he appeared to hapless Semele. Well, Jupiter, is, or Jove, or Zeus, is the uh, the chief of the gods in Greek and Roman mythology. And Simile was a woman who uh, Zeus appeared to in his true form. He had he had come in disguise to her and, and and made love to her, but she wanted to see him as he truly was. And when uh, when he s- revealed himself, he was so overpowering that it killed Simile. Now. That's a very interesting image. That's an image of the power of God. It's, this is flaming Jupiter, burning away and destroying a mere mortal, which is, of course, exactly what Faustus is afraid of. What he, you know, his fears for damnation. It's also very interesting that Helen, the the woman, is in the position of Jupiter, the male god, and Faustus is in the 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 weak position of the the mortal woman who is destroyed by looking on the face of God. Um, again, it's a very complicated image, and it gives some idea of the the the, the complexity of the uh, the psychology here. Uh, he's seeking refuge in in Helen, but always in the back of his mind is his real the the real danger of. God destroying him, a flaming God who will, uh, you know, burn him in hellfire. Um, now the the old man comes in at the end of the scene as um, a cursed Faustus, miserable man, that from thy soul excludes the grace of heaven and flies to the throne of his tribunal seat. So he realizes that Faustus, uh, Faustus has missed this opportunity for redemption. Uh, he's he's gone off with this. Now, one thing that's another kind of interesting paradox or dichotomy here is that the the image, the, the speech with Helen of Troy, uh, the old man is quite right. This is a rejection of of salvation. 
at the same time, it's figured in such a beautiful way. It doesn't. It feels more like a a victory than a defeat, uh, which is. Uh, and that kind of friction uh, in the way that we feel about Faustus, both kind of seeing his his moral, uh, the, the, the justice of the moral punishment, but also kind of admiring his imagination and his poetic power uh, comes into the play. I think that's part of what makes it so lasting. If Faustus were just a character that we uh, judged as he was, he was the dumb guy who sold his soul to the devil and got what was coming to him. Uh, th- there wouldn't be much interest in the play. Uh, but because Faustus has these wonderful poetic moments like this, it makes it much more powerful. Now, in the last scene, it begins. Faustus is again talking to his scholar friends in, in Wittenberg. And says that, ah, uh, oh, my sweet chamber fellow, had I lived with thee, then had I lived still, but now I die eternally. Look, comes he not? Comes he not? And he says that he, he tells them that he's sold his soul. He says a surfeit of deadly sin that has damned both body and soul. And he has the the, the speech around line fifteen. The serpent that tempted Eve may be saved, but not Faustus. Uh, that's almost uh, you know, a perfect example of the theological concept of despair. Satan himself could be forgiven, but not me. Um, he said, I gave, I gave them my soul for my cunning. Uh, or line 36, uh, for the vain pleasure of four and twenty years has Faustus lost eternal joy and felicity. Um, and they say, why did uh, not Faustus tell, of, tell us of this before, that divines might have prayed for thee? Says, Oft have I thought to have done so, but the devil threatened to tear me in pieces if I named God, to fetch both body and soul, if I once gave ear to divinity, and now it is too late. Gentlemen, away, lest you perish with me. So here it is, the, you know, the very end of his, his contract is up, and he's confessing this, and they say, well, we'll we're going in the other room, and we'll, we'll pray for you. So then the, the play ends with this, a wonderful soliloquy from Faustus, uh, as it began with a wonderful soliloquy from Faustus. He says, Now hast thou but one bare hour to live. And we hear the clock striking eleven. And then thou must be damned perpetually. Stand still, you ever-moving spheres of heaven, that time may cease and midnight never come. So now, again, the kind of ambition to control the universe, and he talked all about the spheres of heaven earlier in the play. He says, Fair nature's eye, rise, rise again, and make perpetual day. Or let this hour be but a year, a month, a week, a natural day, that Faustus may repent and save his soul. He said, just, just give me a little time, you know, give me another, another year, a month, a week, a day. Um, and again, he goes back into Latin, O lente, lente, curite noctis equi. And that's a, 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 a line from Ovid, slowly, slowly run, O horses of the night. Now, the irony is that this in um, 
in Ovid, that's a line that a, a lover is, is saying he wants the night to go slowly so that he can spend it more time with his lover. But here, he wants it to go slowly to prevent what's going to happen afterwards. But it's no good. You know? The stars move still. Time runs. The clock will strike. That's a very powerful... Notice uh, it's a completely monosyllabic line. Every every word is just one syllable. And it is very, uh, you know, strong stress on almost everything the stars move still time runs the clock will strike the devil will come and faustus must be damned oh i'll leap up to my god who pulls me down he's going to leap up but he he can't he says see see where christ's blood streams in the firmament one drop would save my soul half a drop Ah, my Christ. I'll rend up my heart for naming of my Christ. So now the kind of good and evil angels that are on stage, they're they're very much inside of Faustus. Um, And this is, we get the kind of the psychology of his thoughts here, the the kind of uh, blow by blow of what he's going through. Uh, He can see the forgiveness of God, but it's in the heavens, it's in the firmament, it's in the sky. And even naming Christ hurts his heart. Uh, Remember that uh, Mephistopheles couldn't tell him who made the world. He couldn't speak the name of God. He says, yet will I call on him. Oh, spare me, Lucifer. So he's going to call on God, but he calls on Lucifer. Uh, where is it now? Just gone. He's looking for the he where he saw Christ's blood streaming in the firmament. It's just gone. And see where God stretcheth out his arm and bends his ireful brows. So now he's not seeing the forgiveness of Christ. He's seeing the the, the judgment and anger of God. His ireful ireful brows, full of ire, anger. Mountains and hills, come, come, and fall on me, and hide me from the heavy wrath of God. No? No? So he's asking, uh, notice the the kinds of things he's asking, or the kinds of things he uh, imagined that he would do with the power of magic. He's going to stop time, he's going to call the nature and mountains to fall on him, Uh, but now none of that will work. He doesn't have that power. Then will I headlong run into the earth? If I, I can't, if the earth won't fall on me, I'll run into the earth. Earth, gape! Oh no, it will not harbor me. So the earth, he wants the earth to open up for him, it won't. You stars that reigned at my nativity, whose influence hath allotted death and hell, draw up Faustus like a foggy mist into the entrails of yon laboring cloud, that when you vomit forth into the air, my limbs may issue from your smoky mouths, so that my soul may but ascend to heaven. Now let's let's look at that and the kind of the imagery he uses here. He's talking to the stars that reigned at his nativity, that they were on the, the constellation that was there when he was born, and the influence hath allotted death and hell. Notice he's kind of blaming the stars. So, well, I was born under a bad star, and that's kind of uh, controlled my destiny. Um, 
But also, notice the the language of reigned means to, like a king's reign, but it, it's a homophone with reign, R-A-I-N, like rain falling down. And influence, the, the original literal meaning of influence was uh, to... Uh, had to do with water. Uh, the fluid uh, uh, is the same root, fluence, influence. Um, and water imagery comes throughout this little section here. He says, Now draw up Faustus like a foggy mist into the entrails of yon laboring cloud. So he wants to be drawn up into heaven the way a mist is drawn up into a cloud. And again, look at the specific language, into the entrails of yon laboring cloud. Well, entrails are the the guts, the stomach, and laboring suggests childbirth, right? So drawn up into the entrails of a laboring cloud that when you vomit forth into the air, okay, will vomit fits with the idea of entrails, kind of like an upset stomach. But you vomit forth into the air, my limbs may issue from your smoky mouths. Well, limbs issuing, is that fits more with the idea of labor, of giving birth. His, his physical body's limbs will issue forth. It also picks up the idea of dismemberment that's come through. It's not uh, his whole body, it's just limbs. Remember, he had his, his leg pulled off uh, by the horse courser, and uh, Mephistopheles is threatened to tear him to pieces. And all of this is so that I, my soul may but ascend to heaven. Um, well, okay, but the idea of this, you know, clouds, when clouds uh, do things, you know, uh, expel things, they go down. So uh, he wants to be drawn up into the cloud and then vomited his limbs issuing forth from the smoky mouths so that he might ascend to heaven. But wait, no, he's just going back down again. Now your footnote says, Faustus wants to be drawn up into a cloud which would compact his body into a thunderbolt so that his soul, thus purified, might ascend to heaven. Uh well, that's a, a very logical chain of events, but that's not anything like what the language actually says. The language is much more confused. It gives a much more uh, uh, complicated, contradictory image than is captured in the in the footnote. Um, we get another clock strike, and half an hour passed. We'll all will all be passed anon. Um, he says, O oh God, if thou wilt not have mercy on my soul, yet for Christ's sake, whose blood hath ransomed me, impose some end to my incessant pain. Let Faustus live in hell a thousand years, a hundred thousand, and at last be saved. Oh, no end is limited to damned souls. Um, now this is, again, a reflection of earlier in the, the speech. He was wanting this one hour to last longer than an hour. Now he wants an end imposed to his, uh, instead of expanding, he wants the, the time contracted. He says, well, you know, if I have to go to hell, let, let's, you know, let's set the, the prison term. He says, oh, no end is limited to damned souls. 
Uh, now, ironically, at the beginning of the play, he wanted, he was contemptuous of all of these fields of learning that had an end. He wanted the uh, magic that could stretch as far as just the mind of man that had no end point to it. Well, he's found that, but ironically, it's through damnation. He says, oh, why wert thou not a creature wanting soul? How, why did you have this damn soul that's a literally damn soul? Um, he says, or why is this immortal that thou hast? Could, the, could my soul just kind of die off? Ah, Pythagoras, metempsychosis, were that true, this soul should fly from me and I be changed into some brutish beast. Uh, now, metempsychosis is the idea of kind of reincarnation, that a uh, spirit will, uh, you know, die and be reborn as a different animal and, uh, in, in, in subsequent lives. But that's not quite what he's saying here. He says, his soul, my soul would fly from me and I be changed into some brutish beast. So his soul would go away, but he would still be there just in the body of an animal. So he's like separating his body and soul, and the soul is no longer a part of him. He says, all beasts are happy, for when they die, their souls are soon dissolved in elements. But mine must live still to be plagued in hell. He said, well, well, beasts, you know, their souls die with their bodies, but my soul is going to live after my body. This cursed be the parents that engendered me. Now, he, you know, he's blaming his parents. Uh, he's blamed the stars. He's blaming everyone. Um, he says, no, Faustus, curse thyself. Curse Lucifer. Uh, and he can't curse himself for long he, until he curses somebody else. Curse Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer that hath deprived thee of the joys of heaven. Oh, it strikes, it strikes. Now body, turn to air, or Lucifer will bear thee quick to hell. O soul, be changed into little water drops, and fall into the ocean, ne'er be found. Now this echoes that very uh, kind of confusing image before of being drawn up into the cloud. He wants to be changed into little water drops that fall into the ocean. So you, you can't find any individual water drop in the ocean there. It just kind of disappears into that. My God, my God, look not so fierce on me. Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell, gape not, come not, Lucifer. I'll burn my books. Ah, oh, Mephistopheles. And so the devils come in and drag him off to hell. And remember before, he was, you know, very skeptical about hell. And Mephistopheles suggested it was, it was not a physical place, but a psychological one. And here at the end of the play, ironically, it becomes a physical place. The devils physically drag him off stage and into hell. And, uh, you know, nobody's sure exactly how they represented that on stage, but it, it had to be in some physical way. At the same time, this is showing that hell is a state of mind. It's the state of mind he's in throughout this speech, uh, kind of desperately trying to find salvation and not able to. That's hell. Um, and again, just the sheer force of the poetry gives us some sympathy, I think, with Faustus. Uh, we see his mistake, but this feels 
more uh, not just like a simple morality tale where the 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 guy does something bad and is punished and we all feel good about it. Um, I think there's a, a a sense of pity or at least sympathy for Faustus here at the end uh, for all of these all that he's gone through. And it ends uh, with an epilogue, just as it began with a prologue. Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight. There again is that image of dismemberment uh, being cut up. And burned is Apollo's laurel bough that sometime grew within this learned man. Faustus is gone. Regard his hellish fall, whose fiendish fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness does entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits. So the the epilogue kind of draws the the conclusion here for us as if we really needed it. And notice here at the the end of the play, the, the play has lost all of its comic tone. It's become very serious, more more serious than at any other point. And that ability to move from different tonal registers is uh, uh, typical of Elizabethan drama, and it's particularly well used here by Marlowe. And this play is very different from the morality tales that it was in some way based on, because Faustus is more of a, a human figure. He's not just an everyman, he's an individual. Uh, and that makes the, 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 the drama of this more of a drama, more of a character in a situation, and not just an abstract principle. The way you saw that the allegories in, in The Fairy Queen are, kind of, are very abstract. You don't really feel a, a deep sympathy for Red Cross Knight. You kind of intellectually see what he's going through. But in, in Faustus, I think you are meant to sympathize with him. Um, all right. Well, I will stop there with Faustus. Uh, for next time, we're going to start on Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, we're not going to read all of them. They're about... 10 that uh, we're, we're going to read for next time, and they're listed on the syllabus. So read through those and think about how these sonnets are different from Sidney's. Uh, what, how are the, or in, in ways that they're similar, how is Shakespeare using the sonnet form differently? Uh, how are his, his images or conceits different? Uh, and, and in what ways are they similar? Uh, so we'll be uh, digging into some of Shakespeare's sonnets for next time. Uh, the email address for questions is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I will talk to you next time.